Welcome. We're back from our August break with episode 235 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. It's so nice to be back. And we start off this season with a regular contributor and great, great friend, a sage, really. There it is, Almighty Todd, talking with us from his place, his farm in Stockbridge, Vermont. And we discuss Mexican bread in Houston, Labor Day, unions, the robber barons, drones, societal clash, leadership, and leaders as opposed to elected officials, a decent standard of living, yin-yang, education, history, and just, you know, collectivism. Is it, is it dead? And how important is it? It's a great conversation with Almighty Todd. We also have an EW essay by yours truly titled, Quietly Listens, and a poem titled, Beckons You, and an excerpt from Sinclair Lewis's novel, Dodsworth. All of this, as is always the case, is ensconced within several great tunes. So nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 235 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Thank you. 
stand by me. Whenever you're in trouble, won't you stand by me? Oh, stand by me. Quietly listen. As wary as a coal mine canary, don't call this Mary Jane just Mary. I'm hoping for the sake of the Jake and to defend against the evil snake that we are not susceptible to the temptation of being on the take. Hoping with the naivete of the blue sky day that our souls are more whole and deep and our minds play rational and ethical for keeps, though it seems that we might not be there when I witness again and again the empty-ass stare of another unmoored, id, ignorant, and hungry, lost, believing, lazy, and gluttonous is home. As if it is what it is, chimes as a sage mantra rather than as it is ineptly designed somewhat like an interior done in beige with hints and accents of pepper spray and sun-dried cilantro and yet still hopeful this balding boy dost be as the end of summer glistens we sit with the crickets and in comfort quietly listen. One, two, three. Smile. It's on a clear spring morning. There's not a cloud in the sky. Got me out here walking and waving to the ladies as they stroll by. And I ain't forgot for a moment all the things I need to do. But when I see that old sun shining, it makes me think that I can make it too. Yes, and all I say is that the problems come and go but the sunshine seems to stay and just look around I think we found a, a lovely day the flowers woke up blooming and put on a color show just for me I appreciate it The shadows dark and gloomy I told them all to keep the hell away from me Because I don't feel like believing Everything I do gonna turn out wrong Oh, when vibrations I'm receiving Say, hold on, brother, just Yes, and all I really want to say Is that the problems come and go But the sunshine seems to stay 
found a, a lovely day Almighty Todd. Almighty Todd, is that you? Hello, Mr. Conundrum. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. Yeah, same here, brother. I mean, just coming back from our, your, uh, you know, our annual August break with Troubadours and Rock On Tours and rejuvenated. And I like to start the new season with uh, a fresh yet wise perspective. And I think you fit the bill, of course. Well, wise ass perspective, maybe, but <laughs> that works too. And uh, a little bit fresh, yeah. You, uh, you want to talk about? I know one thing you want to talk about in particular is Mexican bread in Houston. Uh, I don't know what else you want to talk about this go around. How's everything? Oh, How's everything in Vermont? Either. It's going okay. Yeah. I mean, it's Labor Day weekend, and uh, you know, I always think of Labor Day as. This, you know, it's themed the unofficial end of summer, but I kind of keep summer all the way through September because it, it holds fast up here pretty well. But it is that weekend when you try and get all the work done that you try, you didn't get done during the summer that you thought you would. Is that what's going on, yeah? Yeah, I'm just trying to play catch up on some stuff, um, some projects and things like that because the weather's going to turn before we know it. and uh, It'll be a whole different story. Yeah. But, you know, but you think Labor Day... It's funny, you know, we're at this point in time where Labor Day was originally intended to celebrate the trade unions and the the labor movements in the United States and goes back to the late 1800s. Yeah. Um, and, boy, if look at things, the way things are going in this day and age for labor unions and um, <clears throat> the uh, middle class manufacturing force and uh, – workers of all kinds and it makes me think that the way things are going and the way uh executive orders are getting reversed and regulations are getting reversed and protections are getting reversed that uh, within a couple of years uh this holiday might be uh like uh artificial intelligence and capital gains day <laughs> maybe yeah I, I think um the private workforce uh, the the number of people in unions now is in the single digits you know, it's it's uh, it's inc- yeah. it's incredibly low, and I think maybe um, a half a century or less uh, back, maybe a third was more more like it. Uh, so it's 
precipitously declined the number of people in, in uh, unions in the private sector. Public sector, a little bit bigger, uh, union-based, but still, uh, we're, we're, I say we're because I'm part of a union. Uh, we are getting, you know, uh, weaker, and uh, the government is no friend, really, especially the federal government today. No, federal or state governments. And the overall, uh, you know, the economics factors and where um, jobs have gone has also drained energy from the unions. Yeah, and and I mean, why is that a bad thing in your in your view? Maybe maybe it's you know it's a free market. Uh, it's it's capitalism. Unions yeah. lost. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, and sometimes they get they lost because they got beaten up by the owners of corporations. And at some point, the government had to step in and say, no, workers need certain protections. They're a vital part of the economy. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> so unions have shrunk, and it's also been harder for other sectors to, to form unions, like people that uh, do home health care for the elderly or for, you know, the infirm and, uh, you know, the fast food workers. You know, would they be needing to uh, lobby for, you know, either mun- – municipal or state minimum wage gains if they as a labor force had the bargaining power to make the market move the the compensation well i don't know i mean it's a th- I, i'm i'm no expert in labor relations or labor law or by any uh stretch of the imagination you have far more experience than i do in in those zones but i just i think about it cuz you know this is another holiday like memorial day that has become more about uh, corporate sponsorship by uh, football teams and Charbroil and uh, Budweiser. Sorry, I, should, I shouldn't even give them plugs. No, oh, you shouldn't geez. have. You can bleep that out. Yeah. Well, um, it, and, uh, but you know what I mean. It's like the, 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 what the holiday stands for has kind of lost its meaning for, for pretty much everybody. I don't know if even folks that are in unions um, take it to heart. No, I mean, as somebody that you, I mean, I ask you. I think I, I think I what happened. I think people are are not aware generally in our country uh, about the history of our country, and and of course they they aren't aware of think. the labor movement's history. No, I don't think they are. I think a big part of the problem too is collectivism. That whole idea of collectivism is is not a, a very um, strong sort of uh, idea in people's minds in, in the United States of America. Well, we, and in other people's minds, it's in the United States, it's demonized. Right, right. If, if not, if not uh, in, uh, without any thought, it's, if there is a thought that comes with collectivism, it's, it's a negative one often, yeah. They're socialists or they're, you know, uh, communists. Now, the other, the other side yeah. of it is unions. I just, I, sorry, I don't mean to jump in, but that just made me think, you know, because there is such like disconnect even possibly hypocrisy in that zone because i saw a political cartoon where there was a guy he's you know drenched obviously must have been flooded he's got a t on his hat and his shirt says get the government off my back but he's wrapped in a fema blanket right right exactly that people see the value of collectivism when we have uh natural disasters such as harvey that has occurred in, in houston is now moving to the east it, you know but why do you have to wait for disasters? I mean, there's a long-term 
uh, tragedy, I would, I would uh, hazard to say, that occurs for a generation to the next generation of families and individuals when people aren't allowed to, to uh, make a good wage, to have time off to spend with their family, don't have good health care. Uh, and all of those aspects are, of life are guaranteed when a union is in place. Now the other side of it is, or at least that's the goal. That's the goal, and the other side well, which, of it is, which is uh, which is me, crazy because well, that should be the goal there. of everybody. It should be, and unions though have been guilty too, because unions, like anything uh, human-made, when they get big enough, they become corrupt and somewhat arrogant, and unions have done that as well, and in many instances. And unfortunately, all unions then are associated with those that have acted poorly and have taken advantage uh, by, by you know, uh, just spending. How come too that much doesn't money. work for senators? Yeah, good point. Good, good point. Good point. I don't know. You I, want it fresh? You know, I don't know why it doesn't work yeah. for senators or for the president of the United States of America right now. Why does mm-hmm. one of those folks, those power mongers, get away with graft and arrogance? Um, and, uh, you know, unethical behavior. Uh, why? I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> a good point. It's not unethical if you don't have ethics to begin with. Well, objectively speaking. It's not oh, eth- unethical oh, to them. No, no, because they don't see it. Uh, so, yeah, I'm concerned about unions as well, and I, I do – right now, where I live – the school year is just about to start, and there are several school districts that uh, are seriously considering going on strike, and and uh, oh, that's boy. because you know the wages, in their view, aren't good enough, and you know healthcare is is being whittled away, and they have to pay more and with less coverage, uh, things such as as that. But at the same time, the municipalities that these districts are in are poor. Uh, and everything is reliant on uh, property tax, and yep. uh, you know the pensions also that are just draining all this money from people that don't have it. So there's a larger problem that basically let, makes us all go to the lowest common denominator, as you pointed out. Everybody should have a high quality of of uh, life with regard to their pay and their time off and their health insurance, but. And unions seek that because they know it's healthy, it's right. But no one gets it anymore, so why should they is the mentality. And mm-hmm. we can't afford it. We can't afford it for them because we're struggling too. Because something's broken, larger. Larger in the system is, the system is broken, our, our society, our capitalistic system. Amen, brother. I don't know. <clears throat> I mean, I wish I had answers for you, but yeah, it's... It seems like we have to go through these cycles. We've talked about this before. You know, it was the robber barons in the late 1800s. You know that we, where capitalism has to be reined in, and unless there's a societal will to do so, it doesn't happen. Um, because, and you can see, I mean, we're moving in this place where the robber barons are no longer building railroads; they're building uh, derivative swap schemes. And, yeah, and there's no jobs that come with that, really. Right. Right. At least when so, they're building railroads, you can get some work. Yeah, but then you know, if you as long as you're not exploiting the people who are building the railroad for well, you. Good. Yeah. True. <laughs> the ex- the exploitation is just kind of changing forms. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day, ladies and gentlemen. Well, so keep up, you know, work hard, keep up the good. I mean, that's that's the the bottom line is for each of us in our own lives. We have to keep up the work. For what but, reason? You mean just to sustain ourselves, or, or just it's keep- it's multi layered, but yeah, to sustain ourselves, to sustain our families, to sustain our communities, and you know, as much as there are these big wigs making crap storms at the top, it's all of us individuals on the ground doing our work and being productive that moves things forward. Yeah, but aren't we just being drones then? Well, it depends. I mean, yeah, you can choose to be a drone. You can choose to plug in and watch 18 hours of TV a week. Actually, I guess that's low. I guess, you know, there's people watch more than that. Um, And you can choose to have a channel on the a news channel, a certain news channel and on the background 24 hours a day, um, inundating you with inanity. Um, Sean Hannity? Is that what you said? Sean yeah, Hannity? yeah, I think that's what I said. Um, but, uh, you know, that's the, that's the personal work. You know, that's not just the, the work of going to your job and being productive and making money. It's the daily work of living life and engaging in life and, and engaging in our community. Um, and how much time you spend doing that versus how much time you just spend consuming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the collective mentality has has to be uh, exercised as a member of a, of the community. You have to be a member of your community. Otherwise, we lose touch with uh, the commonality, the you know the human the human experience and connection that we all should be aware of, and, and we do indeed, I think, share. Um, but the, and that's what makes you want to make sure that your your neighbors are also right. making a decent living and that their right. kids are making it through school because, you know, these things that you've talked about in terms of inequities and uh, living in poverty and being undereducated, that stuff has a an epigenetic effect effect on people. Living in stress, um, especially for kids, has a, an enormous effect on how they develop genetically and their productivity. Pro- proclivity for health, poor health co- outcomes down the road. These are all societal costs that we assume if we don't invest on the front end. The front end being? Being making sure that everybody has you know a decent standard of living, decent education, decent health care. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, those are those, that's why those are fundamental parts of a functioning and healthy Society, a functioning and healthy nation. And do you don't, you don't think we're there now in the United States of America? I, I don't think we are. I don't think that the systems have matured enough to recognize that that's the most the those are the most some of the most important things to pay attention to, and that if you do that, productivity for everybody goes up. And is it that those in power don't read these studies and these reports about? human uh, tendency and behavior, or they just don't care? Well, yeah, Well, there's a little bit of both. I mean, you have to believe in science, number one, to even read the studies. Um, and if you're more interested in a resource grab for yourself, because that's what the current system allows, then humans' lesser angels will show themselves, even if they are in, in uh, higher seats of power. Yeah. I, there, there's... Uh... There's definitely a, a vacuum when it comes to leadership at the municipal, the state, the uh, federal level. And you need strong leadership, I think, because 
to, to share these ideas and to connect us. I think citizens well, right now are just struggling so much, and and we, I believe, I feel like I don't, I'm aimless with regard to my community. I don't know what the hell is going on uh, because there's so much, <clears throat> there, there's so so much ineptitude and and just you know personal um, interest that that drives the politicians that I see for the most part. There's a few good ones here and there. It starts at the municipal level and it goes right up to, you know, obviously to Washington these days, for sure. And it leaves me feeling aimless and disconnected and disheartened. Uh, maybe that's why we watch 10 hours of TV a day, to escape. Yeah, that's exactly it. But, you know, strong leaders rise out of strong communities. You know, weak leaders rise out of weak communities. Well, I, I just... I. I, I feel like that's probably you know, maybe I'm being way over generalizing, you know, in that respect. But you know, we the demands we put on our neighbors, or the uh, expectations we put on our neighbors and ourselves, and how we interact with one another, is the guiding force. You know, I, I feel like we're at a point now where we can't look to the, our leaders, quote unquote leaders, or our, I, I won't even call them leaders because I don't feel that that's the the role that they play. They they are simply elected officials right now, and the methods and factors by which they get elected are are suspect. And that you know, they, there's a that bumper sticker says the people lead, the leaders will follow them. I you know that's a little bit trite, but I kind I do get it. I get the concept is that if we you know we have to r raise our own expectations for the people that sit in these seats if we want things to get better i i agree i agree don't you think though given the problems with our education system as we've mentioned yes and uh the fact that we don't understand history so much and there's so there are so many in the united states i know for sure uh so many um so so many ways. Many people are saying we Frederick are, Douglass is doing a great job. Right, exactly the history part. But there's so, there are so many ways that we are taken away from from uh, really focusing on what it means to be alive and what it means to be a citizen and what it means to be a strong-minded, educated individual. Uh, you know, there there are so many distractions. So many. I, I and it's I I really I don't I don't believe we even know about it. I think we're hypnotized. To a large extent. I, I don't even think yeah. we're aware of it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, well, that's why that, you know, that tune out that was in the 60s, I think on some levels, people do need to consider doing that of, you know, creating a space in their day where they do put the phone aside so they're not looking at Facebook or what's the the latest best cat video. Not that I don't like cat videos. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, it's just it's it's personal discipline, you know, and and you know this is where there is a certain fact, very conservative faction that talks about personal responsibility, but I think that it gets warped, um, a lot of the time, and puts personal responsibility on people that do not have means, right? In a lot of ways, right? Just ignoring um, puts social responsibility. Ills, it, yeah. yeah, it puts responsibility on people that have no um, ability to meet those responsibilities. That's that's not or the, that's not or, correct. But I'm talking yeah. about just each and every one of us, you know, personal discipline and responsibility. You know, I got to catch myself saying, you know, I'm 
I, I'm if I'm not I'm not going to watch Netflix tonight. I'm either going to read a book or I'm going to bed early so I can get up early and do something else. I have to like I have to have that talk with myself periodically. Yeah, I lose that argument. Netflix wins usually. <laughs> <clears throat> and and I jeez, oh, we got to yeah. bleep those the the brand names out again. We do, we do. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Almighty Todd, a regular contributor to Troubadours and Rock On Tours. I'm E.W. Conundrum. And um, we took the month of August off, as is our tradition here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And this is the first episode, 235, uh, but the first of the new season. We have a lot of great guests coming up this year. And uh, Almighty Todd is, is starting us off. We're talking about... Labor Day and labor and unions and a decent standard of living, education, being a drone, leadership, elected officials, so many interesting things. The fact that capitalism is sick, society is lost, perhaps. Or maybe uh, you and it, I just don't get it, Todd. No, no. Well, no. I think there, you know, there are systemic problems, but people still – people, individuals still show through. And so there was that uh, article I sent you um, – about uh, the bakery, the Mexican uh, bread, right? Yes, in Houston during yeah. Harvey. Yeah, that's a great yeah. story. Yeah, and this is, uh, you know, it's a great story on a lot of levels because it's share a, it with the you folks. Know, share it with the folks. Give us a synopsis. Well, just you know, if you the, the quick synopsis is that there's a ba- you know a Mexican bakery that's been there for a few generations. It's an immigrant family that's done well by themselves and for the community, and they're a, a much loved fixture. And the <clears throat> some bakery workers uh, found themselves trapped by the floodwaters, and they they just figured out what they needed to do was they just started baking bread, and they baked like forty four hundred pounds I think it was of like four thousand loaves or something. Well, they just they they made a ton of bread, and when the owner showed up the next day, he was like, "Okay, we got to start distributing this," and they took it to sh- to shelters, and it's like without even a moment's notice. These people and this business owner took it upon themselves to, you know, throw everything they had into the community. Right. And, you know, having been through a, a flood situation myself, you know, my <clears throat> my heart really goes out to the folks down there because I know what uh, a big traumatic experience it is. And I, you know, I we were okay. We had friends that lost their homes. And it's up there in Vermont a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Flooding. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was just six years ago, um, and it, this you know brings up a lot of memories of what it was like. And you know, there's a there's a property just across the river from us that just finally uh, the end of June finished up its FEMA flood mitigation buyout. So it's you know almost six years later, and that business is still being tied up. And so even though people say, "Oh, we're going to get back quickly," and all. It's going to be a, a long road for a lot of people, and I guess I heard something on the order of 364,000 uh, FEMA applications have already been placed. There's half a million vehicles in one county alone that have been destroyed. Um, it's just – it's an enormous, enormous thing for that populace, for the fourth biggest city in the United States. Yeah, I mean, thirty percent of the city was submerged, from what I understand. And and you know, I, I, we also have to, I, I think, bring up that. Uh, it would have happened regardless because it was, uh, you know, f- they said a 500-year storm. But it, it was even worse, I believe, because of 
poor environmental regulation in Houston. There's no zoning laws, tons of there placement. Are, there, there are no zoning laws, and that that's a really big problem if you're building in a in a flood prone area, which <clears throat> which Houston is. Will we learn from that? You know, I, I asked the question, and, and again, I don't go I back don't, to well, the bakery. Those those folks are Mexican American. Uh, and you know they want to build a wall. Well, they're, no, they're Amer- they're American Mexicans. American Mexicans. Well, I, I, I decided yeah. when I, I just for what it's worth when I when people bring that stuff up I flip it around. It, it it's it's if you're if you're if you're here on a green card, then you're still a Mexican American. But they're if looked at because if you're their- a if you're a citizen here, then you're an American Mexican. I get you. I, well, I, I consider myself an Italian American. I'm a citizen, but. I, I understand what you're saying, though it doesn't make a difference. They still look Mexican, I, I presume. So people are going to look at them as, you know, the other and, uh, you know, that they shouldn't be here. And when you look at history, actually, they've always been here. We, we you know, we took yeah, over. They were, they were here first. <laughs> yeah, they were here before us. We just kind of took over the their country, you know, way back. We bought it or whatever. I think we took it. Oh, there was uh, one protest yeah. sign that I saw saw that just said, LOL, your grandchildren are going to be brown. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, man. So do we learn? Will we learn You know, from some of these experiences? Will we soften up? Will we break out of our hypnosis? And why does it take tragedy and extreme situations for us to get there? As another question, it, myself it, included, it always does. Yeah. It comes down to even for people, you know, whether it's people, municipal, state, federal, it takes tragedy for us to reset our, our mindset. Or some, yeah. some, some, you know, amazing event to shake us up. Right. And, and yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, but, but I think people do change. Ideas change. There was actually a piece I was hearing about uh, a development in New York. A company had bought land that they were going to develop a new building on, and it, they bought it right like a month or two before Superstorm Sandy. And so pretty much everybody on the design team had some experience of the storm and brought that with them to the architecture. Mm -hmm. And so what they did was is they built a different kind of building so that all of the the mechanicals for the building, instead of being down in the basement, are up on the second floor. And the building has generation capacity that as long as natural gas comes in, it can run its whole self indefinitely there are pumps built built into the basement the lobby area is all stone and glass so that if if it gets inundated which they expect it will be again at some point it'll be easy to clean up and so you know there's this dual thing that's going on um in terms of climate change and doing what we can to mitigate the the things we can in terms of our behavior that are, are exacerbating climate change. But then on the other hand, there's this, the coping aspect. Right. You have to do both simultaneously. You got to do both simultaneously, even though, you know, right now we are under an administration that, uh, is moving backwards in every way possible. Right. On purpose, it seems now purposely. Yeah. You know, uh, we're, we're just about out of time and I just want to, you know, it's, there's so much more we can talk about. And I love talking with you, Todd. Almighty Todd, if we if we take hold of and embrace and nurture our ingenuity, our our souls, our spirits, you know all the good in us, we can do amazing things and as individuals and collectively. Yet all too often, 
we fall into the depravity or the laziness, the sloth, the you know the demons rather than the better angels, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, and I, I hope we we can do the former more so than than the latter. Well, I think it's that we're both we're doing both at the same time. There's always this urge to move forward and better our situation, and there's an impetus to do that. And I think that it still is the greater impetus for most. That sometimes gets warped into only for me or my clan. And I think that tribal mindsets is one of the biggest challenges to modern to the modern age. Yes, I agree. Is us moving beyond that. Um, geez, I even lost where I was going. But the the point being is that there you know there are there is I got it there we're moving forward all the time but there is always a drag there are the anchors of our vices there are the anchors of uh of reactionary thinking it's it's never it's like the yin yang it's like there's there we it may be moving forward but there's always some piece of moving backward inside of it it you know and and we just manage that it's the the dichotomy there that keeps things moving, you know. I tr- I try to keep it in perspective and think that you know what we're seeing right now is a part of a sick a, a waning cyclic phase of um, a mindset that really will no longer exist in years to come. But there's a gasp before its its demise, and I'm hoping that that's what we're looking at these days in terms of the the push backwards well into put. the past. Well put. Well put. Thank you. Thank you, Almighty Tap, for talking with us on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. We'll be talking to you again soon this season. It's always a pleasure. I hear the birds and the crickets up there at your place in Vermont, and it's, uh, it's very endearing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those as well. Thanks for calling, my brother. Ciao. Ciao. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
Sinclair Lewis, an excerpt. The aristocracy of Zenith were dancing at the Kinnipus Canoe Club. They too stepped on the wide porch with its pillars of pine trunks, its bobbing Japanese lanterns, and never were their dance frocks with wider sleeves nor hair more sensuously piled on little smiling heads Never an August evening more moon-washed and spacious and proper for respectable romance. Three guests had come in these newfangled automobiles, for it was now 1903, the climax of civilization. A fourth automobile was approaching, driven by Samuel Dodsworth. The scene was a sentimental chromo, crisping lake, Lovers in canoes singing, Nellie was a lady, all very lugubrious and happy. And Sam Dodsworth enjoyed it. He was a large and formidable young man with a healthy brown mustache and a chaos of brown hair on a massive head. He was, at twenty-eight, assistant superintendent of that most noisy and unsentimental institution, the Zenith Locomotive Works. 
and in Yale, class of 1896, he had played better than average football, but he thought well of the most sentimental sorts of moonlight. Tonight he was particularly uplifted because he was driving his first car, and it was none of your old-fashioned gasoline buggies with the engine under the seat. The engine bulked in front under a proud hood over two feet long, and the steering column was not straight but rackishly tilted. The car was sporting and rather dangerous, and the lights were powerful affairs fed by acetylene gas. Sam sped on with a feeling of power, of dominating the universe at twelve dizzy miles an hour. At the canoe club, he was greeted by Tub Pearson, admirable in white kid gloves. Tub Thomas J. Pearson, round and short and jolly, class jester and class dandy at Yale, had been Sam Dodsworth's roommate and chief admirer throughout college. But now Tub had begun to take on an irritable dignity as teller and future president of his father's bank in Zenith. It runs, Tub marveled as Sam stepped in triumph from the car. I've got a horse all ready to tow you back. Tub had to be witty, whatever happened. Certainly it runs. I'll bet I was up to 18 miles an hour. Yeah. I'll bet that some day automobiles will run 40, Tub jeered. Sure. Why, they'll just about drive the poor old horse right off the highway. They will. And I'm thinking of tying up with this new revelation company to manufacture them. Not seriously, you poor chump. Yes. Oh, my Lord, Tub wailed affectionately. Don't be crazy, Sambo. My dad says automobiles are nothing but a fad. Cost too much to run. In five years, he says, they'll disappear. Sam's answer was not very logical. Who's the young angel on the porch? If she was an angel, the girl at whom Sam was pointing, she was an angel of ice. Slim, shining, ash-blonde, her self-possessed voice very cool as she parried the complimentary teasing of half a dozen admirers, a crystal candlestick of a girl among black and white lumps of males. You remember her? Frances Volker, Fran Volker, old Herman's kid. She's been abroad for a year, and she was east in finishing school. Before that, just a brat. Isn't over 19 or 20, I guess. Golly, they say she speaks German and French and Italian and woof woof and all known languages. Hermann Volker had brewed his way into millions and respectably. His house was almost the largest in Zenith. Certainly it had the greatest amount of turrets, colored glass windows and lace curtains and he was leader among the German-Americans who were supplanting the New Englanders throughout the state as controllers of finance and merchandising. He entertained German professors when they came lecturing and looking, 
and it was asserted that one of the genuine hand-painted pictures which he had recently brought back from Nuremberg was worth nearly $10,000. A worthy citizen, Herman, and his tart beer was admirable, but that this beef-colored burger should have fathered anything so poised and luminous as Fran was a miracle. The sight of her made Sam Dodsworth feel clumsy as a St. Bernard looking at a white kitten. While he prophesied triumphs for the motor car, while he danced with other girls, he observed her airy dancing and her laughter. Normally, he was not particularly afraid of young women, but Fran Volker seemed too fragile for his thick hands. Not till ten did he speak to her. When a partner left her, a flushed corybant, in a chair near Sam's. Do you remember me? Dodsworth, years since I've seen you. Remember? Heavens! I wondered if you were going to notice me. I used to steal the newspaper from Dad to get the news of your football heroisms. And when I was a nice young devil of eight, you once chased me out of your orchard for stealing apples. Did I? Wouldn't dare to now. Mavenex dance? Well, let me see. Oh, the next is with Levering Mott, and he's already ruined three of my two slippers. Yes. If he did not dance with any particular neatness, a girl knew where she was, with Sam Dotsworth. He had enough strength and decision to let a young woman understand who was doing the piloting. With Fran Volker, he was inspired. He waltzed as though he was proud of his shining burden. He held her lightly enough, and after the chaste custom of the era, his hands were gloved, but his fingertips felt a current from her body. He knew that she was the most exquisite child in the world. He knew that he was going to marry her and keep her forever in a shrine. He knew that after years of puzzled wonder, about the purpose of life, he had found it. She's like a lily. No, she's too lively. She's like a hummingbird. No, too kind of dignified. She's, oh, she's a flame.
beckons you. Pipsqueak parody and chopstick love as the souls of the little ones team wondrous, fragile, beautiful, and closer to true, the myths beckoning the good that resides way up above. And September sun rays shine at yellow light angles, so warm and soothing, speaking from the soulfulness of this planet Earth. For a moment or two, I feel nourished and true. My neighborhood beckons you. Chimney falls as lovers plays A thought that I was young Now a freezing hands and bloodless fate Is numb as I've become I'm so tired I wish I was the moon and I Last night I dreamt I'd forgotten my name Cause I sold my soul But I woke just the same I'm so lonely And I wish I was the moon tonight place free to go Paralyzed and collar tight No pills for what I fear This is crazy And I wish I was the moon tonight Chimney falls as lovers play I thought that I was young Now I'm freezing hands Space is numb as I've become. I'm so tired. I wish I was the moon tonight. How will you know if you found me at last?
And there you have it, episode 235 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Straight back from our summer August repos, as is our tradition. It is good to be back. I hope you enjoyed the program. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, my good friend and our resident sage, Almighty Todd, sharing some time with us from his farm in Stockbridge, Vermont. Thank you so much, Almighty Todd. It was a really nice experience talking with you. I also like to thank Sinclair Lewis for being a brilliant writer. I'd like to thank these musical artists, too. Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli, The Temptations, Gil Scott Heron, Eric Bachman, O.K. Patty, Nico Case, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. Next week, we have famed, renowned essayist and cartoonist Timothy Kreider on the program. It'll be a great conversation, I assure you. Until then, have a great week.